0: You're listening to the Modern People Leader Podcast. Today's episode will be a part of our People Leader Series, where we go behind the scenes with today's top HR leaders and talk to them about how they've gotten to where they're at and what they really do every day. Our guest today is Bernard Coleman, Chief Diversity and Engagement Officer at Gusto. MPL family, stop what you're doing and take five seconds to go subscribe to the MPL Weekly Digest. Every week, we'll share the top three takeaways from the episode, along with the full transcript. Just go to the show notes for this episode and click the link to subscribe. And now, without further ado, enjoy the show. Bernard, happy Monday, and uh, welcome to the Modern People Leader. How you doing? I am
1: doing well. Glad to be here with you all uh, on this Monday. It's sunny, so that makes me happy.
0: Not as not as sunny here in here in Austin, but. Uh, I'll, I'll take it over the freezing weather that we've had the the last couple of weeks.
2: Yeah, one of
0: that. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so let's let's get into some good news stories. So we all share a personal or work related story from the past week or two to kick things off.
2: Stephen, I'm going to actually pick on you. Cool. Good. I, I'm 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 ready, so I'm, I can accept the the challenge today. My good news on Saturday. We had an early my, my partner and I, uh, Sarah and I we had an early Valentine's self-care Saturday uh, that included massages and hanging out at our favorite restaurant brewery for sunset. and it just was like a an awesome, relaxing just all the things we love type of day. so so that was my good news. I'm still feeling great about that. I'm jealous. Bernard, do you want to go next?
1: I can go next. This was, it didn't feel good at the time, but it. I feel good today. Yesterday we went on, a, my wife and our three daughters, we went on a, a hike that was supposed to be three miles that ended up being six miles. So it didn't feel good because the incline was incredible and I thought I wasn't going to make it, but like our, one of our goals as a family is to work on our fitness. So I felt good afterwards and uh, it was nice time bonding and adversity as we went up some Incredible peaks yesterday. Uh and then I the good part is I had incorporated yoga afterwards and stretching because I'm getting older and I was thinking about Tom Brady, the football player, and how he had so much longevity through stretching. So I was My like liability. Yeah. And I I embraced <laughs> that yesterday and did some stretching afterwards and I woke up feeling great this morning. No aches, no pains. So it was good for us.
0: Yeah. I uh I try to stretch every day. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to the wellness theme. So Uh, I don't know if either of you are, well, I know Steven is Apple watch users, but one of the features is competitions. And two of my friends challenged me to do a competition this last week. And I'm happy to say that I won both of those competitions. So that means that I had an active week and, um, yeah, we, I was actually in, in, in Dallas. I live in Austin, but I was in Dallas last week and I don't typically walk my dog every day because we have a backyard here at home and I walked him every day, which was kind of nice. And I think I'm going to start doing that here in Austin as well. All right. So Bernard, I think that you have a super interesting career. One thing that I noticed on your LinkedIn is that you spent a good portion of your career in politics. I think that makes you the second or third guest on the show that started in politics. Like I know for sure Katie Burke did. There's maybe like one or two others. So really excited to to hear your story. So yeah, walk us walk us through that story and- How that all led to you becoming the chief diversity and engagement officer at Gusto? All
1: right. I I guess we're going to go way back then. So uh, I did start my career in politics, and thank you for that question. So, years ago, first job out of college, I was very blessed to get it. I worked at this place called the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and that is the committee that helps elect Democrats to the House of Representatives, uh, the U.S. House of Representatives. So, that was a pretty cool job as a new college grad. But the general ethos I wanted to do was help people. And working in politics, I think, is helpful. I think civic engagement is incredibly important. And I was able to work with members of Congress and something that was the department was called member services. And so that's basically helping members of Congress raise dollars for their campaigns. And it was an amazing first job because one year around members of Congress, because I never thought I would be around members of Congress. So that was pretty incredible. But I got to be part of the body politic and um, contribute to, I think, helping Americans in meaningful ways through just if, if it helped that member of Congress raise more money so they could be more effective in their districts and pass better laws. That made me feel really good. And so I I, I was at the DCCC, which is a shorthand for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee for three years. Then I went to go work for a member of Congress from the state of Maryland and got to see masterclass of what, what politicians look like and working for a guy named Steny Hoyer, who's still in Congress today. He used to be the number two Democrat up to a few months ago. Under Nancy Pelosi, but it was amazing working for him. And then after that, I was like, I got to get out of politics. I need to grow up and get a real job. I was getting married, going to grad school. And I was like, I can't stand here anymore. This feels super shaky. And I went to go work at the Society for Human Resource Management. Uh, and that was really great because, like, I think that's how we um, maybe fall in love with the HR profession and this, the people space. Because I worked at Sherm doing member advocacy and state affairs work, which is basically working with SHRM members, and it was about 185,000 members worldwide at that point, helping them advocate on issues important to the HR profession. So I think we all know there's a lot of laws and rules that help govern what we do as HR professionals. And it was really helping the HR SHRM members speak to what those laws would mean from concept to actually being ratified in the law. And so that was an amazing experience. But then I was like, I really like the HR profession. I think I want to do this. And then Obama ran for president. I'm like, I need to get back in politics.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and
1: uh, a friend of mine was working at the Democratic National Committee, which is the committee that helps elect Democrats to the White House. And she's like, hey, I need somebody in HR. And I was like, I would have done anything. You know, I would have I done any job to be part of that. Uh, so she, my friend Anne-Marie brought me over. And that was like beginning of 2009. Uh, a little bit after Obama was in, and I was there for six years. It was amazing work, you know, going through the HR transformation that was going on at the DNC, going through Obama's reelect, uh, and then to a the second term, and then getting the call from Hillary Clinton to be on her presidential campaign, which was like, I wanted that. I was like, I want that presidential experience, like to actually be on the presidential. So I moved to New York, lived out of Jersey, and commuted into Brooklyn. And that was amazing and um, really smart and talented people I got to work with there. I think everybody know we lost, <laughs> but it was an amazing effort. But the politics piece taught me a lot about how just to work in HR and in the, in the diversity inclusion space. Cause like it's really organizing, trying to find compromise, marshaling people to effectively impact change. And so I was able to use that at Uber where like our ERGs or employee resource groups were really, really powerful agents of change at the company. And then I think I've taken all those best practices and I get to apply to Gusto, which I'd say is like, Gusto for me is perfect because I used to HR side of things, processing payroll, administering benefits, doing onboarding, orientation, offboard, all the things, right? And now I'm at a a platform, people platform as we call it, that does all those things for small, medium sized businesses. So it's like the, I did all that and now it gets to play to all the strengths that I think I have because I intimately use all those products before, and then I get to actually help people. And many other Gusties, that's what we call our employees, have the opportunity to help small businesses and medium-sized businesses succeed. And so if it, for me, it's kind of gone full circle. It's still getting to help people, but also when you think about the mission of our company, it's very meaningful, right? I think a lot of people are looking for meaning in their work, but when you see, and you know I know small business owners, my father's a small business owner, it means a lot more to me personally, um, so I think I didn't plan it this way, but it worked out.
2: So Daniel, this is a politics podcast, right? So I can ask Bernard a lot about the, his time and go for it. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I no, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I know we don't have time, but man, that is such a fascinating story. And so many questions that, that I would love to ask. I was going to, the one thing I was going to ask you, you already answered. And that is like, what, what did you learn? You know, of all the things you learned working in politics, what has served you the best in, in, in as a as an HR executive? Is there anything else that you would add?
1: I think, well, I think the thing that I learned most about is coalition building, right? Like you, one, you have to be listening to what are people's needs and really have your ear to the ground because things shift uh, quite quickly, right? Also working in politics is cyclical, but like being prepared for change, I think, is listening, being prepared for change, and really adaptable. And I think if you do HR well, you can kind of be like, uh, I remember I had one boss say like, you're Switzerland, you're kind of the neutral party, but I think you're almost like a, a broker. And if you do it really well, you can have not only a, a positive impact for the company, but for the employees, where, where you're building that and enabling that trust. So I think it allowed me to like to kind of navigate both worlds. What I'm doing is if I do, I think right by the company, I do really well by the employees. And I think you can kind of hit that sweet spot. Um,
0: so I think
2: it just taught me how to navigate better.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I think the way that you described what Gusto does is, you know, you're a people platform that helps small and medium-sized businesses. So if, if you had to describe to a family member at Thanksgiving dinner, what Gusto does, like how it is that you're helping these small and medium-sized businesses, how would you describe that?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's more like um, we help employers take care of their team. So it's payroll, insurance, benefits to everything HR, right? So like you're helping those employers take care of those things and they thus can take care of their employees. So whether it's remote, being hybrid, helping them be compliant, helping them build great places to work. I think those are all the things we get the honor to do. Because at the core, I think everyone runs payroll, but it's way deeper than that when you're running a small business. And depending on your size, it gets more and more complicated. So I usually start with like, take care of these employers. And then I kind of expand out depending on the audience. But when I talk to my family about it, that's kind of like my um, my go-to.
0: Yeah, the quick pitch. And, and why should why should me and Steven be jealous that, that you get to work at Gusto?
1: I kind of touched on it before, but it's really the, the mission and the impact and the value you get to add. Like, there's some jobs you know you do. And I mean, you do, you do the job because I think we all... If we need, if we have to, I need to work. I got a family, you know, it it could be a very like transactional empty experience. But I think when there's somebody on the other side and you're, you're actually making their lives easier and you hope their products are simplifying things. Cause I know when I used to be on the HR side of things and I'd run payroll and I'd have to work with the brokers to figure out how we're going to design our benefits. I mean, it could be a slog. And if, you know, I remember when I was first getting into it, it was really a lot to learn. It was always changing. And if I think about if I were a small business owner and I let's say I ship widgets I just want to focus on shipping widgets I don't want to necessarily spend all my time trying to be a payroll expert or an HR expert I think the gusto platform in and of itself helps people just make it simply simplified so that way like okay I can press some buttons boom 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 I process my payroll my folks have benefits And then their lives are easier and they get to focus on what I think, which probably why they started the business in the first place. So that to me means a lot. And again, again, having family members really kind of brings it close to home when you know, like, that's the difference you're making by helping people get things done more simply. It's just, I think it's a beautiful, virtuous circle.
2: Love it. Love it. As a, as a entrepreneur and small business owner that also wears the HR hat, like I, having someone that does what you do is absolutely clutch. The part you mentioned for me is that it's always changing, right? And I don't have time to keep up with the changes in the tax laws and payroll laws, changes, all the things. It's just, it's overwhelming. And so having someone that you can just say, Hey, look, you are my trusted partner, guide me through this is, is abs- that's a huge value. So love what you guys do. We've had several guests with employee experience in their title, but I think you're the first with engagement in your title. And I love that because I, you know, the, based on what what we do, the company I run, like we're, we're all about engagement, employee engagement and driving that. And I think it's a lot clearer now. Clear probably more than ever how closely tied DEI and employee engagement, how close those two constructs are tied together. I don't think that was the case. Even before COVID, I think there were still a lot of, lot of practitioners, definitely a lot of executives were like, what is the connection here? And so I'm curious, how did you guys decide that these two aspects should be integrated into the same function at it, it Custod?
1: Yeah, it's funny you say that. Like, I'll, I'll kind of go back a stitch. I remember when I first got in HR, it was I didn't find HR to be that difficult. It was like I put out the holiday calendar. It was very formulaic, right? And I remember when I worked at Sherm, they had this thing called the CEO Exchange, where they're trying to show that HR belongs in the C-suite, and I, I thought that was fascinating because I worked at Sherm from two thousand six to two thousand nine, and the C, the transformation of HR. And I, I would say this is when preparation meets opportunity, right? Mm. In the last three or four years, like I think when the pandemic began, I think people began to realize that they're all interrelated. There's a through line what brings you to the company, how you're hired, how you're onboarded, right? To how you progress and develop to when someone graduates, right? So, and it's taken on, I think, a, a greater amount of importance. So when you think about the employee experience, how you engage with employees is critically important. I think the pandemic, personified that and what really amplified it. Because I think you're looking at engagement scores. Many companies are working in a new way. And I'd like to think the gusto was early because I was hired before the pandemic, right? So I remember having conversation with my boss in like middle of 2019. So I, I like to think because our company's forward thinking, they, they could kind of see what was coming. And to me, I remember when I heard about the role, I was like, this makes a lot of sense because the through line is the most important thing. I think when you take DEI or any piece and say it has active, it's, a, it's an isolation. I think that's kind of a flawed approach. You have to look at the integrated whole experience. And I think when you do that, you're more effective. And I think companies that do that well have higher engagement because they're thinking about the totality of the journey versus like, oh, we only focus on hiring. After that, you're good luck, buddy. You know, uh, I think you have to really think about the whole thing.
2: What what did they used to say back in the day? Hiring and firing. That, that that's what it, just, it boggles my mind that that even in like the two thousand six two thousand like that time frame like that that was still a view that was pretty consistent in companies out there and and boy things have changed and I think for the better and having that that integrated kind of throughput that you're talking about is 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 really really important and so let's talk shop so you know, what responsibilities are under your team? Can you, can you share with us, like how you you structured your team? Because what I'm hearing is, is somewhat of a different model than I think what we've talked to other companies about.
1: Yeah, it's a different model, but I think it's the perfect pairing. So our team really focuses on several areas. So I'll start with the diversity, diversity, equity, inclusion piece. So at DESTO, we call it RISE. That stands for representation, inclusion, social impact, and equity. So we have the RISE team. And so that's comprised of like Developing the strategy that we put out for the company, helping leaders, helping middle managers, helping individual contributors understand what that, what RISE means to the company. You know, that's at onboarding. We have Rise and, RISE and Shine, which is like an education journey. So we have RISE and L&B, which helps with having those conversations and creating learning and development pathways so people can understand what RISE means to the company. And so there's a, there's a, there's that body of work then there's employee relations which i think is really nice to have on the team because once it goes past uh we call our hr business partners people partners here once it goes past people partners the, the deeply investigative stuff happens with er but that gives you signal right so i think if you can, if you if you have rise components in the if what's happening on er then we also have governance and compliance like that's the anti harassment training that's doing our eeo1 reports there's all this different pockets of information across each part of what we get to do that are really helpful because I think that's like a reinforcing function. We we just recently did our people guide, right? Or employee handbook that helps enforce the rules or like how we conduct ourselves as, as, as a company. So again, that's nice that we can create, you see what's happening from the DEI front, you know what's going on with ER cases, and then you can actually write policy that helps right size to where you are in the company. And then there's another piece that we have is just extended workforce, which are our contractors. How does that integrate into everything and part of your total workforce strategy? Because a lot of times companies will have their full time employees, and then the contractors are kind of, you know, a shadow floating out there. Yeah. Floating out yeah. there with no strategy, no, there's nothing, there's no attachment to it. So it, I think having all four of those as a team, we get to have. I think more of an outsized impact. And I think this luck to me, it logically goes together. And this is the first time I've ever been a place where we had this configuration, but I think it works quite well. And, and we have a great team that can help. I think deliver in a way that hasn't been delivered for other companies, perhaps.
2: And so, and so how big is your team? That, that I, that's a lot, that's more functions than I thought that would be in, in your remit.
1: Yeah. We have a few people on the, on the rise team. So I'd say it's about three or four. And then, The ER team is about three, and then we have extended workforce, and then we are, someone's out on lease, we're also helping, we have the the PC squad, which is the people consultants, so like, kind of like HR journalists, you know, so we actually have that as part of the team too, which actually helps because they're also frontline, so then also like, that, that would be an enhancement if that's permanently with our team, but if you think about like inbound, the media inbound, you have, you can kind of see that, and again, you can kind of, you can curate a better experience based upon all the information you have, and I think the the folks who can help create that holistic experience. So the the team will vary in terms of size, but there's about four people the, on the the PC squad. So I think it's always interesting how those configurations are and how big your team size is. But I think it's we I think we have effective scale to help really deliver for Gusto.
2: Yeah, what I love about what I'm hearing is it sounds like you guys are are like really committed to this, like the fact that the thoughtfulness that have been, that you guys have put into the design of the team and why certain components that in other HR organizations wouldn't sit within a DEI and engagement team, I, it, it makes sense because you've put thought into it. And so how does this relate to then the engagement side? So now I, I understand how the team's structured. So... Are you guys? Are when you look at the quantitative piece? Are you tracking when when we talk about engagement? Are you tracking? Are you working with your people analytics team? Like what what's going on there from a from a quantitative standpoint? That's
1: a great question. We have it. We do have a people insights team, and so we work hand in hand with them. So we have, um, we do our we call our our, our pulse surveys. We call it G Pulse, and those pulse surveys are done three times a year, where we basically look at certain, you know, dimensions, like, so we have like a rise dimension, which again, is D- our DEI. We well, have questions related to rise and you have questions related to a number of dimensions, right? But like, we can look at those quarter over quarter and see how how people are feeling. And you can basically get a temperature for how people are and where they're trending year in and year out. And I think what's really powerful there is like, you know, you can't ever put, point a direct line, like, because of what I did, that impacts that group, but you can see you can get a, a better picture, a clearer picture, because we know when engagement's up, people tend to stay, they tend to have higher impact. They tend to be more committed, right? When they have sense of belonging, it decreases attrition. So I think there's a lot of very meaningful uh, data that we can then glean to understand what we need to be doing, where we need to triage, where we need to keep doing more of that. But I think we, because we have a robust robust data set, it helps us make more informed decisions, which, which is, again, what I love because I go through and read all the comments and try to see, like, because I look at a number of places. Not only do I look at our our polls, but I look at, like Gallup. I look at Pew Charitable Trust and try to understand, like, where do we fit in the world? How are we doing? How are we looking compared to everybody else?
2: Of course. And I, I love the fact, like, just going back to the way the team's structured, a lot of times with, with, Pulse data, you can get lost chasing chasing after findings. You've got a, a hunch that the data is telling you something. You don't really have an insight. And so then you lose time, but with some of the other functions, you have people consultants that are on the ground. You've got ER sits in your function, so you know where, where there's smoke, there's fire. Like you have some cross checks within your team that allow that enable you to to actually take action. I would I have to imagine because of that, you're able to move more quickly than than otherwise.
1: Admittedly, to me, that's the best part, right? Like I've been at places with the DI function. Sits alone. It's an island, right? And you're like, yeah. that's usually the case. And it's like 99% of them are like that. Yeah. In my prior company at Uber, it sat by itself. I mean, like it was a part of the larger people team, but it sat by itself and it made it you were doing a lot more clue work and detective work trying to figure out what was going on, what you thought you were saying. But by having these together, like I, I feel like we are a more informed team, which I think we then answer the whatever the call is much, much better because those give me a whole bunch of different insights and then i think again with more information you make more informed decisions and actions based upon that information so i love this is the best configuration i've ever seen i hope that others think about it but it it makes sense
2: well and and thank you for opening up the the curtains for us so we could see what's going on behind the scenes cuz daniel and i have talked to so many you know almost 100 conversations like this at this point and there was a trend it not so much recently but there was definitely a a six-month period where we kept hearing if if i could have more information on how to approach dei in a better way or like what metrics should we be tracking or like how do we integrate all this stuff like people were just really wanting more and here we are having you know you're sharing with us like there is a way for you to do more and so, if you had to pick one or two things that you're most proud of that your team is working on right now, what would those be and why?
1: Yeah, I think the thing that I'd say proud of and interesting, right? Um, like, I think with employee resource groups, we, we call ours our affinity groups, but we're truly tracking membership. Because again, we're talking about data and we have a number of ways that we track membership, but you also want to know about the efficacy of your efforts. And so, the RISE team helps deal with making sure our nine different affinity group communities are supported, but we really want to make sure we understand the rank and file who's here. And so that way we are running effective programs and making sure that not only are they supported, but they thrive. And so we're trying to really work on tracking membership status better. Uh, and so that's basically integrating into our HRS. So that when they push it pushes over to our other systems, we can then eventually tie that back to engagement scores. Because we track by a lot of different things, but we don't track like Like we know engagement scores by the general employee universe, but not by ERG at this point. So I think if we get even more granular, we'll have even better signal like that. ERG is thriving. This one's really use more of a boost. But I think that's the granularity that I'm seeking because I'm really excited about that. And this going to be kicking off pretty soon. In the next couple of months, we just need to continue to map it. But I think one of the interesting studies that we did when we were at Uber was we had a pretty good tracking mechanism for our ERGs there. And we were able to then find out it was like, they had this like this map and we had different nodes. And they said, if you were part of one or more employee resource groups, you had lower turnover intention. And I always thought that was fascinating. And what I want to do is try to replicate that here. So by getting cleaner data to then understand, are you part of one or more, whether you're an actual member, like, you know, you identify as, or you're an ally, doesn't really matter, but are you part of those groups? I think that's, I think there's going to be quite telling data there. And I want to try to validate that again here and see what it tells us.
2: So interesting. So what you found at Uber was if you, if an employee was in one or more ERGs, they were more likely to stay at the company. Is that right? Yep. And the time I was
1: there was 2017 to 2020, which is an interesting time in Uber's uh, history, but ERGs were everything. And so like, I really was trying to pour everything into our ERG community to make sure they felt supported. But that was an interesting finding. and there is there's lots of studies that show like if you feel like you belong, you will stay. But I think this is another dimension of belonging. So if we can have that represented in the data, then I think we'll have better signal if we can then cut across our different our different
0: nine uh, affinity groups so on on one of our recent episodes we we had someone on named Emily Howe and um, she she shared some of the, I guess, more creative ways that she's seen companies leverage their ERGs. And I think the example that she gave was from Frito-Lay. And she talked about how they engaged their Latinx ERG with the product development team. And the result of this was they ended up creating their their biggest product launch in decades. I think it was the, the guacamole chip. And it really opened my eyes to what all ERGs can can take on and some of the creative work that they can they can do for the company. So I'm just curious, are there any interesting projects across the the nine ERGs at at Gusto that 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 your people are working on?
1: We have some cooking. Like I think it's it was very early on because our affinity yeah. groups are, I think, are, are really really awesome. And I think we're still working on trying to formulate ideas that actually make it to our product. And we've we've kicked around ideas before, but like, you know, you got to look at prioritization and mapping and getting out there, but like, we have some interesting thing cooking that I, you know, I can't reveal yet. Uh, Cause you know, the product roadmap, it's a, a team decision who decides what, what our product roadmap looks like. But I think we have the potential to unearth things that are helpful to all of our, 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 um, our customers, which are the, the companies we support that our ERGs can help with. So I don't think we're there yet, but I agree there's lots of different possibilities. I did that in, in prior places where the ERG would say, we really need to get this in product next thing you know, it existed. Um,
0: so I, I think the possibilities there is just a little early on. Gotcha, gotcha. And you know, one thing that that I noticed in some of the, the notes that you shared over prior to this call was on your intersectional content calendar. Can you, can you share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's basically, you know, we have nine different affinity groups and I think intersectionality is the word, the operative word. Cause I think a lot of times, um, I remember I had a friend say like, this isn't the struggle Olympics. I think when it's intersectional that you realize that all of these groups have something in common in some shape or form. So the intersectional heritage calendar basically is looking at across all the months and there are different communities celebrate or observe and trying to figure out different ways to have it cross-pollinate. So let's take International Women's Day. Like you might have Black with Gusto and Women with Gusto, which were two of our affinity groups. What, what things can you do together? And I think by creating more intersectional moments, it makes more community and connection. So when your affinity groups are talking to one another, I've seen places where some operate in silos and then you see somewhere like, hey, let's do, let's have a shared effort here. When it's intersectional, I think you get one one more bang bang for your buck, but also I think you're building greater connection and community and being more impactful. And then you're kind of all rowing in the same direction. So by doing that, basically we create a content calendar and we say, here's the whole year. These are the associated months and it allows our ERGs to effectively plan for the entire year. Because later on in the the month of August, we're going to have our uh, affinity group. This will be our third affinity group leadership summit. So that's why we start now, different months, different actions that we do. But then we kind of keep going together and looking at each other's plans and making sure we're doing these things together as opposed to in isolation, which I think is a more effective way of working. And then again, like you're sharing in the celebration and and recognizing that I might I have multitudes, right? Like our group has this, but we also this, this and this. And we could share on on the efforts together with that affinity group or this affinity group. So it's been really effective.
2: Nine affinity groups. I love that. But for for the listeners out there that don't have ERGs yet, but they're thinking about starting some, what's your advice? like where what can they do to get started? Is there a, you know do you need to be a certain size? How do you determine what groups? like I, I see a lot of companies wanting to kind of lean in and, and take that leap. But resisting, because it's one of those things where like, if we get it wrong, like it feels like a lot of things could go wrong, or it could be really bad if if the rollout goes wrong. So just curious on your experience, like, what are some tips that you have?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, you know, the readiness of the organization does matter. But when you're starting out, and let's say you don't have all the perfectly representative staff that you're seeking. I think a lot of times I see culture committees come together where you're like, well, we don't have that. We don't have a specific women with, or black with, or whatever group with. But you can start with those culture communities to help increase and keep that top of mind. And then as you build more representative staff, I notice in the groups within form once you get critical mass. So let's say I'm going to start with women because typically I think you have a better shot of growing representation for women, right? So like you grow a representation, okay. that you might have women with at so and so company, and I think yeah. you're basically seeding and setting the playbook for what that might look like as you grow your representation and then make those folks feel again, welcome and intersectional. And I think the good thing about the cultural committees, if that's where you're starting is it helps create a playbook for others to follow. So as those groups form, you can work together and and, and create those. And I think the other thing that's really important is making sure that leadership's aligned, right? So like you do want to have support because I think grassroots is great, but you also want a leader to say like, this is important to me and then once you able then the, I would help you would financially support the effort. So like once it goes from culture club or culture committee to official affinity group or employee resource group or business resource group. But as they keep moving up the the naming convention, throwing resources behind it. But I think it's all I think when I've seen smaller companies, they start with culture committees. Love that. Yeah. Um, I think it's, a, it's, it's it's important. It's a good signal
2: and and it's an easy way to have people self select right and nominate themselves and typically you'll you'll also find out like who who really is looking to get involved and and start making contributions at at a at a different level than just their day jobs those could be your champions for for the ERG you know whatever affinity groups that you you end up setting up from there so love that well Time is ticking, so I'm going to switch gears up here a little bit, and I want to talk about uncertainty and making sure people feel the proverbial love, which I think Daniel took from, from one of your blogs. In my experience, during uncertain times, people are looking for stability, they're looking for perspective, they're looking for guidance. Uh, I, I'm just curious, is this something that's, that's on your mind? And if so, is there anything that y'all are doing at Gusto to provide people with more support and coaching? Cause I think it's safe to say that we're, we've all been impacted by the uncertainty of the markets, the uncertainty of wellness. And so just curious what, what you guys are doing on that point.
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing that I could speak to the immediate people team, we have like a mentorship program where I think you're mentoring some of the with the high potential folks and making sure that they feel supported and they have someone to talk to. So I see that investment within your team in creating space. And then it's something I've just been taking on this, like I enjoy mentoring so much that I, I'm trying to, I got assigned one person and I'm like, I want to talk to other folks because I remember I could speak personally than what I think would, why we do it at Augusta. But like, I remember early on in my career, I would get such terrible advice from people I, I, to the point where like, are you trying to hurt me with this or maybe you just don't know and i think mentorship's so important right and i think perspective sharing and providing that makes me feel supported again it helps create connection and i think it helps people in their careers in general so like we're doing that on the the immediate people team but as a people function we're looking at different ways that we can engage and, and make sure folks are supported because i think at the end of the day employee engagement comes down to like again understanding that through line and making sure people are fully supported through like learning and development opportunities through affinity groups, but I think by creating lots of support structures, that helps increase engagement at least and make people feel feel that proverbial love.
2: And, and for the the listener that that is part of an underrepresented group, what advice do you have that that feels like you know they're part of an underrepresented group and they feel like they're not getting the support and the mentoring that they need? I know one big blocker for me was with in um, in the hispanic culture at least my generation you you never ask questions of someone in an authoritative position so a doctor or someone like that you'd i would go to the doctor's appointment and they would ask if we have any questions and like my mom and like everyone would just be like mm, no we're good and then we'd leave and it was, I, I, I found later in my career that if, if you don't ask, you don't get is, mm-hmm. is how I put it. And that was a really hard thing for me to kind of overcome. And so I know that there are a lot of people, especially in the younger generation where they just didn't have the emphasis on networking in person networking that, that we might've had. Like, what's your advice for the people out there?
1: Yeah. I noticed like, I say shoot your shot. Like a lot of kids uh like who are coming up, like, and I, I don't mean to knock the younger generation, but like just be willing to ask. I find uh, I'm reading, I'm reading two books right now, one by Adam Grant, give and take, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talks basically about there's givers, there's takers, and there's the, the one in the middle or matchers, like you're doing like basically quid pro quo, right? And he talks about how giving in the long run is more effective than being a taker, because everyone sees what you are and they know they're just taking. And then I'm reading this other book about coaching and it's about asking questions. And I think it's just good to ask questions. So I think if you get a person who's more seasoned and further up the chain, they're more apt to share. Like you ask a question, like, how did you get here in your career? And I think it opens a door for conversation. Yeah. Um, I've actually had people just randomly on LinkedIn reach out to me like, hey, I'm looking for a mentor. Would you give me your time? And and I I do it. Um, wow. You know, I do all the time, but like, I want to not feel like how I felt as a younger person. And I got, again, objectively bad advice. And I'm like, I don't want you to experience what I experienced. So this is personal, like a personal mission for me to try to help when I can, right? Um, mentor people who just need some advice. And it doesn't have to be an every week thing, but I just think sometimes you need to come to people. Because I, I, even when I got to Uber, coming out of politics and tech, even though all my skills are transferable, totally different ball game. And I, I didn't know, any. again, like talking to black culture, I didn't know any black executives were like, hey, what should I do? And I just remember just struggling. I had one friend who was like, he's he's like, he's the only one who was like, like killing it. He's uh, since like mid twenties, he was an executive. He's just a very special, like just flying, flying so far ahead and I, I need your help. And he's like, read the first, first 90 days by Michael Watkins and he gave me all this advice that was really helpful. So to answer your question, I said, I think it's worthwhile to reach out to your network. It doesn't hurt to ask. I think that's the first part. I think this is specific to people of color. We're told not to ask. It's work hard. Yes. You know, they'll pay off in the end. But you you gotta ask. And it's, it doesn't hurt other than, you know, shoot out that note, shoot a Twitter, you know, a link on uh LinkedIn. Maybe they respond and maybe they're like, hey, you know what? You and I went to the same school or you and I are like this, and like, yeah, I'll help you out. And and that's the first step. Um And I tell tell many people who are coming up, like, just ask, you know, like, you you never know.
0: Yeah. It it, it makes a world of difference. This reminds me of a conversation. So I had a very short-lived podcast. It was one where I would interview founders of companies. And I was talking to this guy and his approach for finding mentors over the years is he finds somebody that's where he wants to be in five years. And he'll, he'll cold reach out to them on LinkedIn for him. He's, he's looking for, for other founders that have businesses that are where he wants to be in a few years. And he'll ask that person to mentor him. And he'll, I think he offers like, you know, $250 a session. Like I'll pay you. Like I'm so serious about this that I'm even willing to pay you $250. I'm not saying everybody should do this, but uh, I don't know. I, it made me really in, and the one thing that I noticed across like the the three or four episodes that I did for that podcast, every person that I talked to had at least two or three mentors over the years and that's how they were able to get to where they're at today. So plus one on, on having and finding good mentors. Um, yeah, I think it's so important.
1: Yeah. And if I could add one more part, I, I always tell people get two mentors if you can, one that looks like you and one that doesn't.
0: Cause like mm, that's there's different, yeah.
1: There's different pathways, but when you have both, you're like, now you, you see the maybe the, perhaps the, perhaps the full landscape. You're like, I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know that was possible. And that has been helpful. And I always tell people like, get your,
0: get yourself too, if you can.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I love that.
0: All right. So I read a couple of the articles that, that you've written recently. So you write for, for Inc, right? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So you, you had one recent article about the three common missteps that managers make. And you mentioned underestimation as one of those mistakes or missteps. And personally, I I don't manage anybody, but I know that as we grow the modern people leader, we're gonna have to hire people to take over things like editing, social media, email. But because I'm so close to the work, when I think about the prospect of passing off some of this work to somebody else. It's scary. Like the first thing that I think in my head is like, and I know this isn't true. I think they're not going to be able to do it as well as I do it because I have like a very, you know, uh, specific way of wanting to edit the episodes of just like little things. And so, you know, for all the managers out there that that have a tendency to maybe underestimate their people or maybe just not even trust them, what advice would you give them to to sort of get over that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's tough. Like, I remember earlier versions of me would say, like, the one thing I can count on is me, and I would go with that core belief, like, that no one can do it better than I can. And even if that is true, right, but other people can do it, right, and there's different ways to do it. So I remember something my dad always says to me is, like, they're not you and you're not them. And so I can't hold them to my standard, but there is a standard, right? So I think if you look at it from, like, what is the standard that I need to get this done, recognizing they might not be able to do it like me but they might be able to bring different energy or different ideas to it that would enhance it. Because otherwise you're just hiring a carbon copy and that's not necessarily what you want. Like you want to grow this, right? So maybe you need something complimentary or new or different. So once I changed my mindset, that helped me accept that I just have to trust, right? Like you still have to do like a rigorous hiring process and make sure they can, they have the skills, but like once you can trust, like, all right, you got it. And and you just go do it. Because I think if you undermine them, then you kind of make this self-perpetuating, like, oh, you can't do it. I don't believe in you. And then you begin to kind of underinvest in it. And then they they can't do it. But If you tell them they can, I hired you because you can because I believe in you, then you watch and see what they can do. So that's how I operate now. Like, I believe that I could almost take anyone after, you know, again, assuming that they're qualified, go through that rigorous hiring process. Once you're here, I know you can do it. And so I think this is enabling them getting out of the way. So that's what I choose to believe. It doesn't always work, but nine times out of 10, I felt like in my career it has and they exceed your expectation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And something else that you said in that article that, that, that really resonated with me is you said, my job is to provide you with the outer boundaries, and then you can paint liberally within those bounds. And I know this isn't the exact same, um, the example that I'm about to give, but that's sort of how Stephen and I think about these these conversations that we have with our guests. We like to create some direction around where we're trying to get to in our conversations, but once we have those guardrails or some sort of direction in place, we want to freestyle and paint liberally within those bounds. Like that's where it gets really fun. So, you know, why do you why do you think that so many managers make this misstep of of not providing direction? Do you think it's because they don't really have a clear direction themselves or do you think it's more of a case of, of them just failing to communicate that vision?
1: I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think I'd like to believe people always know what they want to do for the most part. Like I know I have three daughters and they'll say, dad, what should I do? I was like, what would you do if I weren't here? I said, you it out you, you know what you want to do. Why don't you do it? So I think sometimes managers don't clearly articulate it. it to me, I know if I say these are the outer limits don't go beyond that. And I know that most people, approve. they like to have agency. Like, as you're right, if it's too rigid, if it's so rigid and scripted, then I think that limits um, the creativity and like the new ideas that might be brought about. So I think by saying as a manager, like, look, this is A and this is Z, don't go beyond that. But you could do whatever you want within that. As long as you don't go beyond those things, let's see, let's see what you can do. I think you'll get more out of your team and you've communicated, right? just don't go beyond that i think that gives them the, the agency to know the, the freedom to do it i i find it hard to believe that most managers don't know what they want to do but perhaps sometimes maybe like they're afraid or they're looking for the employee to decide right which is i think not not leading but you should have an idea of what you want to do and the general direction you want to go in but it doesn't have to be like fixed we can only do A, B, or C. but there might be lots of different ways to do it and i like that i like to give myself that optionality so that we have my team says they want to go that way or this way i don't have any strongly held beliefs other than like don't touch these third rails you're going to mess us up if you stay with this i feel like we can do whatever um freedom and i think also like why i really like doing that is people give me better ideas because if i if i cut off the routes to creativity then the whole team loses because you're holding back
2: Oh man, there's so much so much good in there that I want to dissect and I want to jump into and we haven't even made it to the questions I had about your your article three lessons from Beyonce to grow your business cuz that's really what I wanted to hit on but uh, we covered so many good things but it's that time. We got to start turning the corner. Uh, to wrap the, the the conversation up, the next tradition we have on the Modern People Leader is what we call rapid fire questions. Same set of few questions that we ask every guest. First question for you is: How do you define a modern people leader? What are the traits and characteristics?
1: Yeah, I think I think you have to be really adaptable, right? Um, I think I do think empathy is more important than it's ever been. You really got to be able to read the room so you can understand, like, what the organization needs, what people need, what does the business need, like, from the policies to the processes to the programs. And I think when you're reading the room better, like, you are the modern people leader because you're you're really agile, right? And then I think some of those traits that I think are really important would be, like, are you authentic? I think people need to believe you, right? I think objectivity is important. Like, if I don't think you're fair, that's a problem. I think you need to be consistent. I always tell my team, like I care more about I don't care about, you know, like the 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 tortoise in the hair, just be consistent. I don't care about speed. Like our work is longitudinal, right? Like it's it's be consistent. And then I think being vulnerable, I like to do real talk with my team is how people I'm really feeling. I think people appreciate that more. And then I think the other part is communicating, like telling people what's going on, what's happening next. And I think people feel more bought in. So I think that's the the modern leader when they can do those things well.
2: Yeah, what what I love, I bet you're a great manager, Bernard, because just the the authenticity, the ease in in your answer is just very notable. So love all that. Next question: If you could go back in time and talk to a 22 year old you, what career advice would you give yourself, and why?
1: I would tell myself to dream bigger. I think on uh, my phone I'd do like notes and say like what I want to accomplish in the next five or ten years, and I've accomplished those things and I don't say that to brag, but I was like, I wasn't dreaming big enough. And I think a lot of times if people limit themselves, they might get to certain plateaus, but there's more mountain to climb and they might just pause there or stay there when like you they, you can add so much more to the world, you can do so much more. So I would say dream bigger because otherwise you are what you say you are. So if you say I can only do this, then you, you will just do that. So I think by dreaming bigger, at least you're shooting for the moon, the stars, as opposed to say like, I can only hit the the upper atmosphere. So I
2: always say dream bigger, dream bigger. Love it. Last question. Is there anyone from your team that you want to give a shout out to for their great work? Oh, that's going to be, I want I, to give you a minute cause this is a new one. We just switched up this question. So uh, we know it's, a, it's putting you on the spot, but, but yeah, what, uh, what shout outs do you have?
1: I think, I mean, I could probably go down the line of all the, of the whole team and say what they've been doing. Um, but so I don't have any favorites. My three daughters I have no favorites. Um, <laughs> now, I mean, like, I, I can't say just one. Uh, I could, but I think that would just create a, uh, that would just be, I feel awful for the others who might not feel like, why didn't I get that? So I'm going to, I'm going to pass on that one. Can uh, I or
2: we it? can, you can give a shout out to the entire team also. So that that's, that's cool.
1: Too. Well, I want to give a shot at the whole, okay, the whole employee engagement team, because each parts, each of the parts that they do contribute so much to the strength of the entire team. And I, I don't think there's a, my friend of mine on the people team, he goes like, it's a three-legged stool, right? If you take one of those legs away, it falls. And each of them brings so much into the stability and the success of the team. Without them,
2: we would fall. What a great way to wrap wrap up our, our rapid fire section And so we have a one last question for you. We've been so fortunate to have such amazing guests like yourselves, primarily yourself, primarily through organic recommendations. And so if there's one person that you think is just cutting edge in, in the people space, you know, that we have to have on this show, who do you think that should be?
1: Oh, um, I want to shout out my friend, Roz. So, Roz Harris, I used to work with her at Uber. Um, she is at Zillow now. So she's the VP of recruiting. But she is a, a, a great, great people leader. She knows her stuff. I would encourage I would highly encourage you to reach out to Roz and kind of awesome. see what's going on in her world.
2: Very cool. We would love to have Roz on. Uh, so we will definitely, you know, follow up with you maybe you can give us an introduction to her. To uh, and that gets us that gets us to our final tradition. And we love to end the show with the one word or one phrase close. It's just a reflection on the last hour, this amazing conversation we've had. Uh, who wants to go first? If you guys don't won't take it, I'm going to shoot my shot and yeah. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with intersectionality. That I love that.
0: I'm struggling here, so I'm just going to make one up on the fly. I'm going to say uh successful Monday. You know, I I feel like sometimes Mondays can be a bit of a drag, but um having having a recording on our Monday afternoon I'm feeling pretty energized going into the rest of the week.
1: I started, we did this earlier work. Like I'm, I'm optimistic, like, uh, you know, just trying to be optimistic. So optimism, particularly on a Monday is always great. So,
2: so true. Well, as Daniel said, thank you so much for joining us, carving out an hour of your time to, to have a chat with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. Thank you righty. All right, guys. We'll talk to you later. Soon. Bye.
0: Bye. Thanks for, for tuning in to another episode of the Modern People Leader. We we really, really appreciate it. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five star rating. It would mean the world to us. And connect with us on LinkedIn. We wanna we wanna know what you think about the show. And uh yeah, you can you can find links to both of our profiles in the show notes. So thanks again for listening and, and see you on the next episode.